Several weeks ago, we began a series which, is what, which was titled Desire. The series is titled Desire. And every series has an intention. There's a purpose for which we preach different series. And this series was specifically designed to kind of plunge us into the human heart as it's described in Scripture so that we can, dis- we can understand a little bit more specifically why we do what we do, and how God transforms what we do. And so that's what we've been studying together. And in the context of the series, I've been, prior to preaching, trying to be faithful to recommend different resources each week. And this week, the resource that I would like to recommend is by our own Josh Hughes, and that is the Desire CD, which is actually titled after the series that we're in. So, and here's the way I want you to look at this. You know, every generation of believers has to write their own books and compose their own music. It's part of what God does in each generation. It's part of the, the work of the Spirit to have new voices and new brains rethinking and re-speaking to make truth relevant to each generation. And that's how God's work takes root in that generation. And it's how God preserves and transfers the gospel to each generation. So I want you to be very encouraged by this work emerging from this local church, because it's not just good music. It is good music, but it's not merely good music. There's something else going on when something like this is, is produced. It is a, a wonderful reminder to us that God is at work and that his grace is at work in our local church, creating songs for us to worship God, but also creating works that are going to preserve and protect the gospel for the children that are over in children's ministry this morning. So, you can get this this morning at the Connect desk. You can get it online, iTunes, Amazon, or you can just pop over to Josh's house. He sells them out of his trunk, and he'd be happy to give you one at a discount price. Open up your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. First Corinthians 10, beginning in verse 6. The title of this morning's message in the context of the Desire series is Idols, the gods that govern. Idols, the little gods that govern. And we're going to look, of course, at idolatry this morning, beginning in verse 6 of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now, these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, 
and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Let's pray. Lord, I stand here very aware of the significance of these words, very convicted as I read them. And yet, Lord, I realize that you want to do something among us today that transcends any one person because your word is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, and it's here this morning to divide us. Lord, we pray that you would allow your word to work within us, dividing that which needs division and encouraging us through the reality of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This passage drags from the shadows a theme that really many Bible believers and Bible readers often overlook. And that is this strange topic of idols. Unless you think this is some idea that's kind of obscure and tucked away in just one corner singular passage somewhere in the Old Testament, let me just for you take a, take a small sampling of just some of the passages that exist in Scripture. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 4 commands us, do not turn to idols. Leviticus chapter 26, verse 1 commands us not to make idols. Psalm 97, verse 7 calls us not to boast in worthless idols. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 17 calls us to not trust in idols. Jonah chapter 2, verse 8 calls us not to hope in idols. 1 Corinthians 6 says the kingdom won't be inherited by anybody who worships idols. Idols. Paul tells the Corinthians to flee idols in 1 Corinthians 10. John tells us that we should keep ourselves from idols in 1 John chapter 5, verse 21. Indeed, it is hard to crack any book of the Bible without being, being confronted, being struck by some haunting reference to idolatry. Modern-day writers often comment on the sweep of idols in the passages of scriptures as well. Os Guinness said once, quote, Idolatry is the most discussed problem of the Bible. David Powelson once commented, quote, Idolatry is by far the most frequently discussed problem in the scriptures. 
Ed Welsh says, quote, idolatry is perhaps the most dominant image in Scripture. What are they talking about? What do they mean? I mean, in case you don't know it, American Idol is going to be in Tallahassee on August 19th. Maybe we could suggest that they explain that to us. What does this mean? What is an idol? Now, to shed light on that question, Paul takes the reader back to several Old Testament stories. The first appears to us in verse 7, where he says, Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it was written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And he's talking specifically about the story that emerges out of Exodus chapter 32, the story of the golden calf, where Moses goes up upon the mountain and he's delayed because he's encountering the living God. The people are down below, and they're waiting for God. They're waiting for Moses. They're waiting to be told what to do, but Moses is delayed, and the people become impatient. And as it often happens when people become impatient, their heart drifts from God, and their allegiance slides from God to other things, and they ultimately ask Aaron to construct for them an idol an alternative God, a substitute God. And Paul cites Exodus chapter 32, verse 6, when he says, and then the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. How come? Why did that happen? Because of their impatient unbelief. So that's the first story Paul kind of pulls forward from the Old Testament. And then there's a second in verse 8 that comes from Numbers chapter 25, where the Israelites have come to Moab. And the king of Moab fears the Israelites because of their numbers and because they have not lost a battle yet. They are fearsome in his sight. And so he, he hires Balaam to come and to curse the Israelites. Balaam was kind of a prophet for hire back then. But when Balaam goes to deliver a curse upon the Israelites, he can only prophesy blessing every time he opens up his mouth. And so he can't curse the Israelites. So Balaam goes back to the king, and he suggests a completely different strategy. He says, send your women to the Israelites. Have them invite them to a party where false worship will take place and sexual rituals will, will go on, and have them bed down the men from Israel. And Israel takes the bait. They worship these idols through these sexual rituals. God becomes angry, and 23,000 people die in one day. What's the point? The point is that what the enemy couldn't achieve by, by curse or by force, he does by seduction. And Paul pulls that forward for the Corinthians and says, remember that, because that goes to the subject of idolatry. And then there's this final cluster of two from Numbers 14 and 21, where the people are freed from Egypt, but then they begin to grumble. They begin to complain against Moses. And so in the first situation in Numbers chapter 14, God promises judgment upon the people. And in chapter 21, in the second, God delivers judgment upon the people in the form of these fiery serpents that are biting them in the wilderness and killing many. You know what the reason was? Because they were complaining. 
because they were grumbling, because they were forgetting the power of God and the reality of God. See, the point of this entire section is that Paul is now interpreting the meaning of those Old Testament stories. The Old Testament reported the action. The New Testament is now interpreting the meaning. It's interpreting the motivations. And as he says in verse 6, these things took place as an example for this reason, that we might not desire evil. And then he goes on to say, do not be idolaters as some of them were. See, there's somehow where the stories of Israel's impatient unbelief, seduction, and grumbling led them towards idolatry. Now let's just hold that off for a second. Let's remember where we've come from in this series. Thus far in this series, we have learned that the heart, the human heart, is active. That the human heart is always churning out, always manufacturing desires. Clothing manufacturer manufactures clothing. Steel manufacturer manufactures steel. The human heart manufactures desires. It's how it is created. So we looked at Proverbs chapter 4. Guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. There's always things flowing and churning and pulsating and coming out of the heart. Well, see, in this passage, we learn that those desires can be corrupted, that we might not desire evil, Paul said in verse 6. That desires can be corrupted. They can become impatient unbelief. They can be seduced. They can manifest in grumbling. And the New Testament calls these kind of desires evil desires. Lusts of the heart. Cravings. James says concerning temptation in James chapter 1, verse 14, but each person is tempted, listen to this, when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, then desire, when it is, has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So when desires eventually become evil, sin is born. And idolatry then, listen, idolatry is just the way to describe what the sinful heart attaches itself to. What the sinful heart affixes itself upon. See, every heart, every, every, every human being must live for something. Because we have these active hearts. These active hearts are always manufacturing, always churning. So God has created our desires in such a way that they're always attaching, always affixing. In other words, they're, you know, they're, they're kind of sticky. Desires are attached with a kind of, of stickiness. They're like, they're like spiritual packing tape. You know, have you ever used packing tape? It just you pull it off the rule or the spool and it just acts in this kind of unruly manner. There's nothing that you can do with it. It attaches to the first thing that it comes across. As soon as you pull it off, off the roll, it's attached to your hand. Pull it off your hand, it's attached to your clothes. After it attaches to five things, it eventually gets onto the package. You know what I'm talking about? Okay, idols happen when desires stick 
to bad things. Idols happen when desires stick to bad things or even stick to good things too much. Let me, let, me, let, me, let me give that to you again so you can have that as a paradigm for understanding a definition of idolatry. Idols happen when desires stick to bad things or stick to good things too much. Bad things. You have a woman or a man who is addicted to drugs, addicted to porn. They may have inherent constitutional addictive tendencies, but the Bible defines that as idolatry. So a bad thing. But there are also good things that can be idolatrous. You have a mom who, who loves her kids to the degree that she prioritizes her children over her husband, and she lives this anxious, fretful life, always worried about their well-being, putting her own hopes and longings for happiness into her children. So that's something good, a mother's love for her children. That's something natural. But as John Calvin said, the evil lies not in the desire. It's that we desire it too much. So when our heart affixes to something and just desires it too much, even something good can be corrupted. Now here's the link back to this passage. In 1 Corinthians, we learn that unbelief, seduction, and grumbling led them to idols. But the, the physical idols in the Old Testament, because we read through the Old Testament, we see all these, these physical idols. You think, what's up with that? I don't get that. The physical idol, like the golden calf, for instance, was simply an outward sign of an inward disorder. Think of it as a kind of sacrament corrupted. You know how the sacraments, baptism, Scott taught about baptism. It's the, it's the outward sign of an inward reality. Idols are like the opposite. They're, they're the outward sign of an evil corruption that has taken foot or taken root in our heart. It's a, it's a rogue worship that's taken place where our sinful desires go public. And in the Old Testament, they often went public by creating these functional gods, by creating these substitute gods. Now, they go, they go public in different ways nowadays, but that was just the way they did it in the Old Testament. So when you see idols, physical idols in the Old Testament, it's simply a public display of a heart reality of a corruption that has taken place. It's when desires get stuck to the wrong things. Okay, so we're talking about idolatry this morning. And, you know, often when we come into contact with this, this naughty problem of idolatry, as it is revealed in Scripture, there is a temptation as we listen to the message that we can become condemned, we can become disoriented, we can become disheartened, because there's a sense where a message like this lays claim upon all of us. None of us are exempt when it comes to this kind of content. But I want you to remember, please remember what we learned last week. And that is that when a person becomes a believer, when they become a Christian, a Christian is given a new heart. And that new heart has two incredible perks that go with it. One, that new heart is front-loaded with desires for God. 
Remember how we said it last week, that God implants a new heart with a new appetite for God. So God gives us a new heart. It has a new appetite for God. It's front-loaded with desires for God. That's one of the perks. And then a second perk is that that heart comes prepackaged with power. It's kind of like buying a battery. You buy a battery, it comes prepackaged with power. This new heart comes prepackaged. So God implants in us a new heart where the Spirit resides and gives us the power of God. So we have those things. If you've called upon the name of the Lord, if you own Jesus as your Savior, that's part of your package. And that's wonderful news. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. The reality of those new desires and even that new power didn't stop Paul from needing to warn the believers in Corinth concerning the existence of this thing called idols. He does it in verse 6 when he says, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters. In verse 11, he says it again. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom of the end of the age has come. Verse 14, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. So, this is not simply written for unbelievers. This is written for believers. And we together must understand what we must do to According to verse 7, not be idolaters as some of them were. Well, to answer that question, how we don't become idolaters as some of them were, Paul, God gives us clarity in this passage. And I think there's, there's both something we must do in this passage, and there's also a way we must think from this passage. There's a way God wants to help us to transform our minds when we are encountering temptations towards idols. And it comes in something we must do, but a way we must think. And I've got three different points that emerge right out of the text here. So first point, something we must do is humble yourself. Humble yourself. A way we must think is to think, I'm not as strong as I think. Now look at verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Humble yourself. Let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. I'm not as strong as I think. Actually, in approaching a passage like this, we must begin by paying careful attention to one word where Paul says, therefore, because anytime you see therefore in Scripture, it basically says, in light of all that's been said, this is what you should do, or this is how you should think. So what's been said? Well, as we've already covered, through these different stories, though there's been three or four different illustrations from the Old Testament that have come forward, they all share a couple of things in common. All the stories that Paul brought forth share a couple things in common. One is all the people in the past were dramatically saved by God. Also, number two, they all encountered the power of God. Also, number three, they all knew they were the people of God. In fact, in the case of Numbers chapter 25, Balaam couldn't even curse them. No nation could even stop them. But 
There's something about those experiences with God that led them to think that they didn't need God as much. Paul implies here that Israel became proud. They felt they deserved better. They grumbled. They complained. They had God, so they were less vulnerable to the temptations that other nations might experience. And when, when force couldn't, couldn't challenge them, when a curse couldn't oppose them, couldn't break through, the enemy just did an end around and attacked them with seduction. In other words, when a frontal assault or an air war couldn't work, they seduced them from behind the lines with sex. And soon Israel was worshiping a false god. Why? Because Israel assumed they could stand, and that triggered the very fall that came. So Paul is pulling this story forward, and he's saying, listen, believers, Corinthians, and from all, all generations to follow, be instructed by this. The implication being, this could be your story. Let me ask you a question. Is there any area this morning where you believe you're beyond temptation? Where you think that, you know what, the Moabites just can't reach me in this place because I just seem to have this inherent strength. I just seem to have something that God put in me that makes me more sturdy than other people. It can come in, in any area that we just have this idea that, you know what, in this area, I, I've just got game. I'm too good. I'm too moral to commit immorality. I'm too strong to admit weakness. I'm too chaste to access porn. I'm too much of a man to be tempted with a same-sex attraction. Those places where we say to God or even say to ourselves, I could never. That's typically the way the statement starts. Oh, I could never do that. Oh, I could never stoop to that. Oh, I could never go to that place in my mind. We're going to look deeper at this when we study the life of David Brainerd, but there are certain kinds of self-satisfaction that only failure can get at. And God has this unique approach that is his and his alone to those who think they stand, those who think they stand apart from God, those who think they can stand independent of men. God says, hey, you got two options. You can take heed and you can downgrade your estimation of yourself or you can fall. As Charles Spurgeon once said, every Christian has a choice between being humble and being humbled by God. So it comes in the form of that idea of, you know what, I'm, I'm too good in this area. But there's another idea as well. And, and that is this idea, and this is probably even more common because it's more subtle, more seditious, if you will. And that's the idea that, you know what, I can manage low levels of temptation in this area. You know, the world is like, is like the Moabite women. You know, the world is kind of always enticing us to attend the party, always enticing us to come over and just enjoy ourselves, and, and there's this rocking party going on. And what happens is, we, over time, we slowly find ourselves tolerating more and more and more, more cursing more 
screen time, more skin, more food, more spending. You know, that, that attractive girl at the office or guy at the office who just makes you feel younger than you are or so good about yourself. You, you know, the, the reality is, listen, no one rolls out of bed and says, I think I'm going to commit adultery today. No, nobody does that. It's, it's slow. It's small. It's I can manage it on this level. I can confine it. I can exercise power and influence over it. It's like low levels of poison that we swallow each and every day and don't notice the effects until we are too weak to stand up. And the reason, the thing we have to understand is that the power of idolatry is in seduction. It's how it speaks to us and lulls us and lures us and pulls us in. And no one is exempt. No one is exempt. Israel encountered God in dramatic ways only to turn away from God in a vulnerable moment. Any of us, any of us could go down by a good-looking Moabite. By a good-looking Moabite who's throwing a party and inviting us over for the evening. And God says to us, you think you're strong? The Spirit whispers, take heed. Take heed. You're not as strong as you think. So humble yourself. That's, the, that's, that's what we do. And what we think is, I'm not as strong as I think. Second point. Here's the do. Um, stop whining. And here's what we think. My temptation is not unique. Stop whining. My temptation is not unique. Look at verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. In other words, in your battle against these rogue desires, keep this in view, that your temptations are not exceptional, they are not unique, they are not special, never seen before in the entire world. You ever notice how, I'm sure your life is just like mine, how there are these voices that are always seeking to convince us that we have been singled out for a unique experience of temptation in this area that no one can understand. Nobody can relate to the fears that I'm encountering as I suffer in this area. Nobody can understand the rare facets of my complicated marriage or the matchless pull and tug that I feel towards this possession or this position or this person. This is a never-seen-before temptation in the history of the world. Well, Paul kind of speaks right into that and says very affectionately to all of us, stop whining. Stop whining. This is common to man. There's no award awaiting any of us because of the unique burden of temptation that we and we alone have experienced. God says, no, you know what? This will help you. You're not special. You're just like the rest of them. You experience temptations that are common to man. You know, it, it, it's funny, but when we get diverted from God and go after substitute gods, 
Chasing those idols has the effect of insulating us, which then helps us to lose or leads us to lose perspective. Because it convinces us that no one can relate to my experience. No one can counsel me in my experience. I can't seem to trust anyone with my experiences. My temptations are uncommon. You know, in the first command, God says, I'm a jealous God. It's good for us to remember that idols are jealous as well. In other words, they not only replace God, but they replace the church. They replace the people of God in our life. They have the effect, when somebody is pursuing an idol vigorously, it has the effect of kind of cordoning them off, sequestering them away from the other people that they love or who could influence them. In fact, one of the ways you know you're worshiping at the wrong altar is that you look around and see that you're all alone. And that idol will whisper to us, nobody really gets you. Nobody really understands this. No one is really trustworthy with this kind of information. You you need a different kind of human. You need an expert to really parse this. Now, let me just say quickly, some people do need experts to parse their things, and I'm not attempting to be overly simplistic here, but hopefully you have a pastor and friends around you that are involved, and they're saying to you, yes, you need an expert. Go to the expert. One of the most isolating idols that people can experience is when we begin to idolize, need, crave, lust after, vindication. Vindication. There's a kind of vindication lust. And see, the challenge of vindication is that we, in living life, we can be sinned against in horrible ways. But sometimes in the weakness of being sinned against, there's a vulnerability that we have where we can begin to pursue this vindication lust that begins to exaggerate the wrongs that we've experienced until we become convinced that nobody but nobody can understand what we're going through. Nobody can understand the temptations that we experience. And as a result, all of a sudden, people don't come around any longer because we've got this alternative God with an alternative church, and we think they can't relate to the way we've suffered because our experience has been so uncommon. The sins against us have been so uncommon. And it's into that chaos that God speaks and says, no temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. And he wants us to know because it is a point of encouragement that other people have experienced this. Other people know what you're going through. But more important than even that reality is the reality that God is saying to us, and I have experienced that temptation. Now that's a wild thing to wrap one's mind around. And I'm thinking specifically of that passage in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 where the writer of Hebrews says, for we do not have a high priest who was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect, listen, has been tempted as we are, 
yet without sin. He sympathizes with us. Well, on what basis does he sympathize? Because he has been tempted like we have been in every respect. See, I don't know how we think about Christ when he was walking here on the earth, but there's this sense where we can kind of feel like he was in heavenly protective custody and he was immune to all of that, never pierced with the temptation, never understood the experiences that we have when we go to him crying out with our fears and our suffering. But on the contrary, we could never relate to the temptation that Jesus Christ experienced. Because the assault upon him was unique. The assault upon him was ferocious. In fact, no one in the history of the world has received the hurricane of anguish and desolation that the the Lord Jesus did. No one in the history of the world received the onslaught of the enemy in such a concentrated manner as Jesus Christ did. I mean, you may have had bad days, but you've never had Satan appear and tempt you. You've never had to bore the sins of the people of God. None of us have ever had to experience the forsakenness of God while we are still alive. See, we usually go a couple of rounds with the enemy and then we cave in, we succumb. But what's it like to go all the way with the enemy while he's launching everything in his arsenal at us? I don't know. But we have one who's gone before us who does know and does understand. And because of that, he can sympathize with us. But we can't relate to that. I mean, listen, which boxer better understood how powerful Muhammad Ali really was? Was it George Foreman who went eight rounds with him and then was knocked out? Or was it Leo Spinks? Leon Spinks, who went... went 15 rounds with the world heavyweight champion and ultimately, ultimately won. I want to suggest to you that it was Spinks that received all that Ali had to offer, all that Ali could produce, the, the fierce wrath of Muhammad Ali. Christ received the gale force winds and the gale force hurricane from the enemy himself and Because of that experience, he has won this distinction, able to sympathize with you in your temptation. And here's what we need to to know. Because Christ was able to sympathize, we can be relieved from the responsibility of feeling like we need to sympathize. In other words, because Christ sympathizes with us, we don't need to self-sympathize. You know, if you're anything like me, the awareness of my weakness and my battle with my sin is really the beginning of the pity party that takes place around my house. You know, and we're, so, we're so funny that way, aren't we? we? We sin, then we feel sorry for ourselves, which makes us more vulnerable to sin, and we sin again, and then we feel more sorry for ourselves. And it's like God steps in the middle of that whole mess and says, listen, good news, I've got the whole sympathy thing covered, so you just work on loving me and loving each other. Don't worry about the sympathy thing. Don't worry about giving yourself sympathy. I've got sympathy for you. See, because of the cross, we get far more sympathy than we deserve. And we get it from one who understands our temptation in every respect. So Paul steps forward and he says, stop whining. Your temptation is not unique. 
And then lastly, Paul steps forward and says, speak truth. And this is what we're supposed to think. Speak truth. My temptation is not unbeatable. It's not unbeatable. Look at verse 13 again. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape that you will be able to endure it. So when we encounter this onslaught of temptation, when we feel like this this, this temptation that we're encountering is utterly unbeatable. There's nothing that can be done. And God has left me alone. I stand alone. In fact, if God was with me, I wouldn't feel the way that I do. If God was with me, I wouldn't be experiencing this level of temptation. We must remember that, well, Israel, to use Paul's example, Israel in Exodus chapter 32 God had led them through the wilderness, but now they're in experience. They're in a time where the experience of God, the experience of God is not there. God is absent. And when we go into that kind of season, we can think that if God is absent, then the temptations are going to be more present, which is sometimes true. Then if God is absent and temptations are present, I need a God somewhere, and so I must flee to a God substitute I must flee to an alternative God, enter the idol. Maybe you're feeling that right now. Lord, why why aren't you with me? Why aren't you there for me? God, honestly, sin is starting to look very good right about now. And God is using this message to get your attention because he wants this truth to ring from heaven. I am faithful. In fact, I sent my son so that he would suffer alone so that I would always be there with you, so that you are never alone. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. God is faithful. Your temptation is not unbeatable. God is faithful. And part of the way, according to this text, that God shows his faithfulness is by setting the temptation levels in our life. Now, very quickly, I want to remind us, James chapter 1, God doesn't tempt us, but he does confine temptation. He does control temptation. Remember Job, last series we were in? God says to Satan, you can do this, 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 and this, but you can't do that. You got the game rules, you got the ground rules. So God measures out, controls, according to our ability. Very interesting word there. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. That's a very important thing for us to wrap our brain around, because how often are you saying in the middle of temptation, Lord, this is way beyond my ability? This is way beyond what I can stand against. This is way beyond what I'm capable of. Lord, I'm not, I'm not like the other guy. I'm not, I'm not a trained cage fighter. I'm a mom. I'm a student. I'm an ordinary person. God says, I got it. And this is what I want you to know. You will never be tempted beyond your ability. Don't worry. I'm faithful. I'm not going to allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. It's like God has one hand on the sewage valve, the sewage of temptation that can come into our life. God has his hand on it, and he turns it, and he, just according to our ability, that's what we get. 
fact, it's not just one hand on the sewage valve, but he's got another hand on the escape hatch. Because it says in the passage that he will supply a way of escape. There's a way of escape. You experience a temptation this afternoon. Built into that experience is a way of escape. No temptation to overtake you, common to man. God is faithful. He'll not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. See, the lie is there is no escape. I know you're lied to in the same way I am. That you feel that. There is no escape from this. I might as well just give in. I might as well just serve the idol because I can't withstand the idol. We say, God, get rid of the temptation. Just just destroy it right now. God says, not this time. No. But this one comes with an escape hatch. And I'm going to show you what it is. But, But here's the thing. God's escape clause, the escape hatch, means that we never have an excuse for worshiping idols. And also, because we have an escape that is built into the temptation, we have to realize that doesn't mean that it's going to come to us as something that's attractive to us, something that we like. I mean, oftentimes it comes with a radical edge, a radical step. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. So God can sometimes come with an escape plan that can be big and huge and hard, but he gives us the grace to do it. But it can feel hard. You need to break off that relationship. You need to upload the screening program or cut up your credit cards or or serve in some area to slay the selfishness that you're in bondage to. Or or, or maybe maybe for you it's it's time to get honest with someone and really confess some sin because maybe the idol that you worship at, perhaps the altar, is one of people's respect and the way that we appear in front of people. And we don't want to look weak. We don't want to look bad. We don't want our reputation stock to drop in the eyes of these people so we don't confess we hold it in listen if we if we accomplish nothing else in this church can we be a place where it's okay to be messy because we are messy so that's already the reality but where it's okay to be messy where tempted people can help each other find the escape hatch because we know we are messy and that escape hatch can be, it doesn't deliver us to a spa. You know, it, oftentimes we hear escape and we think, we're on a desert island and we'll escape to a very comfortable arrangement, very comfortable. No, it says escape to endure, that you may be able to endure. God doesn't beam us over to Hawaii. It, it, it's actually more like escaping a POW camp and now we must endure many dangers, toils, and snares. But God's escape always comes to us because he is faithful. It comes to us in the form of grace. It comes to us in the form of grace to endure, grace to flee the idol, which is where this text ends. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. And flee we must. Flee from idolatry. I've got a question for you this morning. 
Are you fleeing from idolatry? Or have you and some idol found a comfortable home together, you know, kind of cohabitating, shacking up together? You know what the good news is today? The good news is that, yeah, there may be an evil desire, and it may give way to idols, but idols don't ultimately have the final say, that God is bigger than our idols. And he is faithful to provide a path of freedom from our idols and a power to endure even as we're walking away. And I want to encourage you this morning, and I want to leave you with this idea that if you need him today, if you need him today because you see some false gods more clearly, please let me encourage you, flee to him, cry out to him, ask him for the grace that he gives because he and he alone is faithful to help you. He and he alone is faithful to strengthen you. He and he alone is faithful to bring you